Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. This is your host, Pete Quinones. I invited Scott Horton to come on the show. Scott pretty much needs no introduction by now, but he is the managing director at the Libertarian Institute, host of Any War Radio for Pacifica 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles, host of the Scott Horton podcast, over 5,000 interviews, and he is the editorial director of Antiwar.com. I asked Scott to come on because a couple people got in contact with me about Mike Baker. He's a former CIA agent, former in quotes, and he was on the Joe Rogan experience recently. And really in the first 15 minutes, he talked about Soleimani, the assassination of Soleimani. And he went into Soleimani's history, which turned out to be basically everything cribbed from a Wall Street Journal article that we're going to talk about. And I wanted Scott to come on and provide some background for all of these generalities and these accusations, many of which are true. But how about we have some background to it so that we can know exactly why this all is happening. So that's what Scott's going to do. So without any further delay, here's Scott Horton. Hey, Scott, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. Uh, I had a couple people reach out to me and make comments about former CIA Mike Baker being on Joe Rogan's podcast. And one specifically today said, um, if you listen to the first 12, 13 minutes, he's making all these claims about Soleimani. And one person said, can you ask Scott to comment on this? Because some of this stuff just seems completely outrageous. So... I sent you, I made some notes on it, sent them to you, and then you sent me back this Wall Street Journal article, and I started reading the article, and I'm like, holy crap. So um, do we want to start on the timeline? I mean, a lot of these accusations start like immediately in 2003 with the with the United States invasion of Iraq, or uh, how do you want to do this? So the reference to the Wall Street Journal article there is that essentially it's the same thing as this guy's interview, only more so and better. It's in other words, from the Hawks' point of view, the case against this guy. It's Kareem Sajapur from, I think it said from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who wrote this thing in the Wall Street Journal. It's called The Sinister Genius of Qasem Soleimani. And, you know, quite a bit of it is accurate. It's, you know, as with a lot of this stuff, man, um, there's, you know, kernels of truth, but most of the lie is in the omission. In in the denial of the real context. And especially when you're talking about the results of Iraq War II. That's what they never say. Of course, this is all the Wall Street Journal editorial board's fault in the first place. So, hey, who are we to complain? That doesn't quite make the edit. And so it's sort of the big elephant in the room. What was American foreign policy in the Middle East, 2003 through 11. I have no idea. Can you remember? I think that they were overthrowing a Sunni government in Iraq. Uh, something like that, I guess. I don't know. Uh, history started the day before yesterday. Uh, so, yeah. Let's go back to... Um, well, let's go to, through your notes first. and I don't know. We can go through. And okay. Try yeah, to find so, the rhyme or reason here. So he starts uh, essentially, off... Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was saying he starts off with Soleimani was responsible for hundreds of Americans dying and thousands and thousands of other people. Okay. Well, calls him a bloodthirsty. I'm sure thousands is true. <laughs> thousands yeah. of other people. Yeah, maybe maybe tens or more than that, but still. Okay, so context. Let's get to the American soldiers part last, or not last, but later, because that's not until in the story that doesn't happen till 2007 right even you know mostly even according to the hawks so we'll get there but that's that's a little bit later let me take a drink real quick hang okay so first of all and we have time so let's take it slow and easy did you see the story on the front page of antiwar.com the other day it was uh, john schwartz uh in the intercept uh wrote it up I guess it was a Bloomberg piece or something that he was referring to. Anyway, the story was Donald Trump's talking with David Wormser. Well, who's David Wormser? Well, David Wormser is a very influential neoconservative from the era of George W. Bush. And in fact, 
he was the guy who was the principal author of the policy paper called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm that was signed by the likes of himself, Richard Pearl, Douglas Fyth, and quite a few other neoconservatives. And it was written for Netanyahu when he was coming in as prime minister of Israel in 1996, his first time as prime minister. And essentially, it's full of a bunch of propaganda that was blown up the neocons, uh, say, earhole by Ahmed Chalabi about how wouldn't it be great if we got rid of Saddam Hussein? Because then what would happen is we would have this supermajority Iraqi Shiite, um, supermajority Shiite country in Iraq. And it would be so wonderful under our administration that then we would be able to lord it over Iran. In fact, in this Wall Street Journal piece, he actually paraphrases that perfect, that this really was the thinking. He says this was the thinking. In fact, let me find that paragraph and read it to you real quick. Because um, sometimes I think people doubt me when I say that because it sounds so stupid. But <laughs> you can actually see this in, um, in the clean break, of course. Um, but let me see I'm paging down here. Sorry, I'm stalling for time as I'm paging through this uh, this Wall Street Journal piece. Well, the good news is we can cut this if we really have to, right? Hang on. Let me find this thing. <laughs> oh, dang it, Bobby. I went too far. I'm sorry. This is going to be worth it. Okay, here it is. I'm sorry. If the U.S.-led Iraq war was intended in part to cow Iran by establishing a strong U.S. military presence in Iraq and create a flourishing Shiite democracy to undermine the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic next door, comma, Iran would do everything it could to ensure that America's experiment turned into a smoldering failure. So he's perfectly encapsulating the thinking in the clean break doctrine. Now get this, Pete. Think about this for a second. Our problem is that Iran has too much power. And they use their influence with Syria and with Hezbollah to threaten Israel. And so you know what we should do? Get rid of Saddam Hussein. Instead of saying, hey, let's just, I guess, we got to continue balancing these two powers off of each other and this kind of thing. They say, well, we want to get rid of Iraq as a major Arab power and potential threat to Israel anyway. And we're thinking that if we do it like this, then we'll have all of the sway in Iraq and we'll be able to lord it over Iran. The joke is that it was Ahmed Chalabi who was telling him that. Ahmed Chalabi, the Iraqi Shiite exile and convicted uh, bank embezzler who was working for Iran and who the CIA and the DIA later said – Oops, we think not only did he let the Iranians know that the Americans had cracked their codes, but that actually he had Iran's blessing and support for luring America's neoconservative Zionists into getting America into a war against Saddam Hussein for Israel and whatever he had to promise them about how, oh yeah, and we'll get an oil and water pipeline to Haifa and the new Shiite-dominated Iraq will have a Hashemite king or later it'll just have Chalabi himself and will be an ally of Israel and all of this stuff. He just sold them a pack of lies. Now, I'm not trying to say the neoconservatives are innocent victims here. Nobody gets to claim that, oh, I was tricked into starting a war. They knew they were starting a war and they were lying about Saddam Hussein and his unconventional weapons and his ties to his enemy, Osama bin Laden, and the radical Islamist group in order to justify that war. There's no innocence here. But, you know, you and I could do a bank robbery and then also botch it and kill a bunch of innocent people and get wasted on the way out the front door, too. And it right, doesn't make it uh, just because we're stupid doesn't mean that it was an innocent mistake. It was just a mistake, a really bad one. And so, you know, at this point in the story, you see how um, 
what Ahmed Chalabi didn't tell the neocons, uh, what he told the neocons didn't come true, that the whole thing blew up in their face. And what they ended up doing was fighting Iraq War II, George W. Bush's war, the neoconservatives war in Iraq for Iran's best friends, not just for the Shiites. And I know I say this in every single interview because, hey, what the hey, it's the point. People need to figure this out. They picked Iran's favorite parties, the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution, the Hakim family faction, and their Bada Brigade militia, and the Dawa party. Now, these were the Iraqis who had fled to Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, when America, under Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, backed Saddam Hussein against Iran, they had taken Iran's side. Then in 2003, when America invaded to get rid of Saddam for them, these are the guys who came right across the border and inherited everything. And their instructions from Soleimani and the Quds Force, I don't know about him specifically, their instructions from Iran were, do whatever the Americans say. Get along with the Americans. They're handing you control of the country. Take it. And so that was their policy. Now, look at 2004 when America fought the Shia in Najaf. They weren't fighting against the Bada Brigade. They weren't fighting against Skiri and Dawa. They were fighting against Muqtada al-Sadr. Well, he was, his father-in-law had, or his father or grandfather who or uncle, whichever, had created al-Dawa. His family had created the Dawa party. But he had stayed in Iraq. And his... um Saddam Hussein had murdered his father and his father-in-law. And the day George Bush invaded, they renamed Saddam City, Sadr City. As Matthew Ho said on the show, he was a Marine Corps captain at the time. He says, yeah, you think we might have taken the hint at how much power and influence this guy had. But yeah, not so much. But this entire you know slum in eastern Baghdad um, was named Sadr City. Well, this guy wanted to limit the influence of America and Iran. He preferred a nationalist Arab-Iraqi alliance at the expense of all foreign intervention. And that was sincere. And in fact, he wasn't just opposing the fact that America and Iran were there. He was opposing the policy of the Bada Brigade, the Supreme Islamic Council, the Dawa Party. What was it that they were trying to do? Well, they were implementing Iran's will. They had a policy of what you could call strong federalism. That is, let's not have a strong central state, which up until then had been ruled by the Sunni Arab minority. Let's have majority rule, quote unquote democracy, a massive sectarian cleansing campaign to kick all the Sunni Arabs out of the capital city. And then let's have strong federalism, meaning they don't have to care for the Sunnis anymore. They defeated them completely. They have the supermajority Shiite population. They have the capital city, and they have control of all the productive oil wealth, uh, oil wells down in Basra and up near Kirkuk. And what are the Sunni Arabs going to do about it? And Sadr didn't agree with that. The, in other words, Iran wanted a strong Iraqi Shia stand and in alliance with the Kurds in the north. And screw the Sunni Arabs. I mean, hey, trying to rule over them. Ain't easy. Why bite off that more than you can chew? Why just take this? So that was the policy. And so when we get through the specific accusations here about Soleimani's role in all of this, you'll hear me say that, yes, he absolutely is guilty of taking full advantage of George W. Bush, of what America did in that war. The worst thing, and you know, I'll defend the Iranians about all the fake accusations about their nuclear program all day long. It's a civilian program. They never were making nukes. I spent the last 15 years of my life debunking this stuff. But it's just the truth that, yes, today, I think, deliberately used Chalabi to help lure the neoconservatives into getting rid of Saddam for them. Yeah, I think they did. And I don't – the fact that Pearl is a sucker I don't think makes him any less guilty. Uh Again, I've got to reiterate. Um, but then also, did they then exploit George Bush's war by encouraging 
the very meanest of the Shiite factions to ingratiate themselves with the U.S. and to build a state in cooperation with the U.S., to build an army, to launch this massive sectarian cleansing campaign with the U.S. Army and Marine Corps. Yeah, they did that. That's the worst thing they ever did. And yet you could see how for the Americans to be the ones accusing them of it rings pretty hollow. You know, everybody pull out your Google and look up the El Salvador option. That's named after, hey, remember when we used those death squads in El Salvador and it was great? Let's do that again. And so they did. And what they did was they hired the Bada Brigade, the Shiite militia, the guys who'd taken Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq war, the Supreme Islamic Council's group, and they built them into the Iraqi army. And they used them to hunt down and murder the Sunnis in a way that really pushed them into the arms of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so, um, you know, there's there's definitely, as you could tell, there's, you know, I'm not, I'm a partisan only of the truth here, not of any side. And I have no need to defend Iran from any accusation that they're actually guilty of. But I think it is really important to say that if Qasem Soleimani wrangles Donald Rumsfeld into doing every bit of his dirty work in the Ambar province, then whose fault is that really? And how can in this Wall Street Journal article and, and in this guy's notes, oh, you know, the way he puts it in here, whatever we were going to try to do, they were going to do whatever it took to turn America's experiment into a smoldering failure. Well, could it really be that easy? America knew exactly what it was doing. It was all going to go great. We were going to have a flourishing Shiite democracy to undermine the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic next door, that illegitimate one. And yet their one wily Quds Force commander was able to you know, sabotage it all. And all he had to do was pull out his pocket watch and hypnotize Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush into being his slave. I mean, is that how it happened? You know, go look up, type this in Bush's meeting with a murderer. And you'll see, I, I saved it from the internet uh, deletion machine there. Um, it's a Bob Dreyfus piece that he wrote for Tom Paine back then. It has a picture of George Bush meeting in the Oval Office with Abdul Aziz Al-Hakim, the big stupid smile on his face, meeting with the leader of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq. In other words, Iran's political, you know, most loyal political agents tied with Dawa. And then, by the way, so prime minister after these guys wrote the Constitution and elected themselves to power and launched the Civil War, all of the prime ministers, Jafari, Maliki, and then Abadi, and now, uh, well, those three were all from the uh, Dawa party, and now the latest, Al-Mahdi, is from the Supreme Islamic Council. And so these are the guys that America put in power there the whole time, and like I told you. That's why they're so upset. That's why they created the, the rise of the help, you know, uh, facilitate the rise of the Islamic State in Syria. They're trying to get revenge against the Iranians for all of the giant favors that they've done for them. All the Iranians have done here is accept and exploit America's gifts to them. So, you know, yeah, it's all true in a sense, but yeah, it's all the Americans' fault, even more so than that. And by the way, let me, let me say one more thing about that. They created the Islamic State. John Kerry said himself, you can Google it up. Well, we thought we could manage they're going to try to use the Islamic State to get rid of Assad, but they didn't march east to Damascus. They marched west into – pardon me, strike that, reverse it. They didn't march west into Damascus. They marched east into western Iraq, and they conquered all of western Iraq. Oops. So then what, that meant we had to launch Iraq War three in 2014 where America went back to war for these very same Shiite militias again with back on the ground – um, by the Iranians. The Quds Force ran the whole thing. George Bush and David Petraeus's army that they built out of the Bada Brigade fell apart. They'll turn back into militias again. The Iranians came across the border to corral them 
and use them to keep the Islamic State out of Baghdad. And in my blog, in my blog entry at um, antiwar.com the other day, and, and you can find this Business Insider covered it. Um, all you have to do is probably search for Soleimani to Crete U.S. soldiers and put that in Google Images. And you'll see it's a base with Americans and their giant MRAP armored personnel carriers, and they're standing there. And here's Soleimani essentially – it's not exactly leading a parade, reviewing his troops officially, but kind of it is. He's, you know, leading his group, his, you know, entourage through the camp. And he is essentially inspecting the American troops. He's, you know, nodding at them, I guess. Good job, boys, because they're in alliance together against the Islamic State, which was the Bin Ladenites, the radical Sunni side that America had helped to build up just to spite the Shia that they had fought the last war for. So, again, you know what? If I was a neocon hawk and the last two major wars that I had fought for the Shia in Iraq had only benefited Iran and and weakened Israel's position, I guess I'd be really mad too. Only I'm, I think I'd be honest enough to be mad at myself instead of continuing to point my finger at them. Baker made a real big point that... Uh, well, what the article says is that Iran caught a bunch of Sunni al-Qaeda escaping from Afghanistan, and then in 2003, he basically <laughs> released them into Iraq, including Zarqawi, and that they went on under his tutelage. They started bombing everything from everything they mentioned in the article, uh, Shia mosques, UN facilities, Jordanian embassies. I mean, is there, where, where are they getting this from? Well, in the article, he cites this new book, which I have not read, uh, by it's called the exile by Kathy Scott Clark and Adrian Levy. So I'm going to order that and I actually ask Gareth Porter about it. And he has also ordered the book and hasn't read it yet, but he already knows so much about this. And we've already been through this for years where the Hawks from, you know, the weekly standard to the foundation for defensive democracies and around always try to leak and spin this information to make it seem like the Iranians are providing aid and comfort to Al Qaeda. But they're leaving out a lot of stuff. Um, and first of all, from you know bin Laden, the raid on bin Laden's uh, hideout there in Abbottabad uh, resulted in you know the collection of a lot of intelligence, some of which was selectively leaked, but more of it came out. And you know, of course, the Foundation for Defense of Democracy spun it as hard as they could, but the New America Foundation, which is more like a centrist democratic kind of leaning one um and also the army war college both did you know more honest studies of those documents and gareth porter of course uh went through them all himself and showed that actually there's not a relationship between iran and al-qaeda here all this stuff is overblown and essentially they like to leave you with a fact but without the context and just let you um you know try to make the worst of it so yeah a lot of uh Al-Qaeda guys fled into Iran uh, when America invaded Afghanistan in 2001. But then they leave out here. I'm sure Baker leaves out. I didn't see the Baker video, by the way. I'm going off of your notes of the Baker video and this Wall Street Journal article here. What they don't mention is that the Iranians were working with the White House. They were working with the National Security Council directly, not just the CIA or the Defense Department. They were working with the National Security Council. And – what they were doing was not just targeting the Taliban in that war, but they had agreements and they were renditioning their captives home to Egypt and whatever Middle Eastern countries to be prosecuted or tortured to death, disappeared or whatever the case. And so that was what happened to the vast majority of them. They didn't just turn them loose. They arrested them. And then what's also completely neglected here is the golden offer. And again, the great Gareth Porter, the article is called Burnt Offering. It's in the American Prospect. 
And I don't know if you can find the PDF file anymore, but it should be available somewhere. Uh, The PDF file of the actual document that the Iranians gave to the Swiss ambassador, because that's how the Americans and Iranians talk to each other, because they don't have uh, an official diplomatic relationship. And the Swiss ambassador brought this thing. And not only did the Bush administration completely reject it, but they gave him a big humiliating dressing down and kicked him out of there just for having the temerity to bring it to them. Except what it was, was an offer of total cooperation on, this is just, I don't know what, three, six weeks or something after the invasion of Iraq in the spring of 2003. And the Iranians are saying, look, you're occupying Afghanistan up against the Taliban. You're uh, invading Iraq. We have common interests in these countries. Aha. We have common interests here. Not opposite ones. (laughs) You like scary. We like scary. Let's work together in these places. You're, you don't want us to support Hamas and Hezbollah? You know what? We're willing to talk about cutting off Hamas and Hezbollah. That's, you know, Hamas in the Gaza Strip and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Um, you want to talk about, uh, you know, our nuclear technology? This is when their nuclear program doesn't have a single spinning centrifuge. It's just blueprints on a table somewhere, mostly. Uh, and old reactors from... You know, when the Americans helped them build them back in the 70s that are just sitting there off and not in use at all. And uh, they say, you want to negotiate nuclear? We'll negotiate nuclear. And on down the chain, that was it. Whatever it is you want to talk about, let's normalize relations. This is our big chance to, you know, work things out. And the and oh, and they said, and we have all these captured Al-Qaeda guys and we're willing to hand them all over to you in exchange for some members of the mujahideen e the communist terrorist cult who had helped with the Iranian revolution and had murdered Americans in Iran during the Iranian revolution and then had been betrayed by the Ayatollah or betrayed him or probably both and had then fled to Iraq. And they were the Iranians who took Iraq's side in the Iran-Iraq war and they had helped crush the Kurd uprising during the uprising of uh, 1991 when Bush Sr. encouraged the Shia and Kurds to rise up against Saddam and then betrayed them and let him use his helicopters and tanks to crush them and kill 100,000 of them. The MEK participated in that. And they're more famous because, uh, you know, in recent years for assassinating Iranian nuclear scientists and carrying out other terrorist attacks inside Iran. And since Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld wanted to use the MEK against Iran, they were unwilling to hand over these communist terrorist kooks in exchange for al-Qaeda guys, including Saif al-Adil, who is mentioned in this Wall Street Journal article, as well as Hamza bin Laden, Osama bin Laden's terrorist son. Not Omar, the guy that talked to Rolling Stone magazine all about his father's great strategy for luring us into Afghanistan, but the real bad guy who was supposedly killed this year. Or, I'm sorry, late last year. I forgot it's already 2020. It was supposedly killed just a few months ago. Um, and Saif Al-Adil, who was, they said, was a very dangerous guy, and maybe he's still on the loose, I don't know. But they held him for years on essentially house arrest. You see how they spin this in the Wall Street Journal article? Oh, he had a widescreen TV and a refrigerator. Huh? Yeah, he was under house arrest. Okay. With a TV and a refrigerator, but they held him for years until Al-Qaeda kidnapped an Iranian diplomat in Pakistan. And then the Iranians had to ransom these guys over to get their diplomat back. So that represents nothing, Pete, other than a failed opportunity when the Bush administration could have had all of this stuff right in their hands and instead told the Iranians to go to hell. You're the axis of evil. You're next. And remember, they didn't just tell the Iranians you're the axis of evil. They told your mom that the Ayatollah was in an alliance with Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and Kim Jong-il. So they could start that war. 
just in case you needed to remember how blatantly cynically dishonest these guys were in manipulating the American people into all this. Now we get to Zarqawi, who they supposedly released to cause trouble. Well, apparently they did grab him for a time and then let him go. Or actually, I don't know, apparently. In in this uh, article, or one of the articles I found, um, they had linked to um, Peter Bergen's book. But I don't know what Peter Bergen's source is for the idea that Zarqawi was detained there. But I've read a lot about Zarqawi over the time, and I don't remember him being detained in Iran during the time he was in Afghanistan and the time he went to Iraqi Kurdistan after the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, the U.S. invasion. So um, it could be that he was in Iran, but he wasn't a member of al-Qaeda at the time. And if the Iranians had him and then released him, you'd have to demonstrate that it was the Quds Force that made the call and for the purpose of causing the Americans further problems. But here's the thing of it is, again, if you assume the worst about the Iranian role here for the sake of argument, hypothetically, that still pales in comparison to the guilt of the Americans for the very same crime. To wit, Jim Mikloszewski, NBC News, March 2nd, 2004, Avoiding attacking suspected terrorist mastermind. Zarqawi was hiding safe up in American protected autonomous Iraqi Kurdistan where Saddam Hussein had no reach. And the claim was that his group Ansar al-Islam that was up there because he was not a member of al-Qaeda at the time. He didn't declare his allegiance to al-Qaeda, Pete, until... More than a year, really a year and a half into the war, it was in the fall of 2004 that Zarqawi finally declared his allegiance to Osama bin Laden. A year and a half into the occupation. Uh, but at this time, he had his group Ansar al-Islam up there. And the claims was, and I think that this is probably not very credible, but the intelligence at the time was he's up there making ricin and cyanide poisons. And according to Chalabi, and the Iraqi National Congress, why Saddam Hussein had treated him in the hospital in Baghdad and had given him a peg leg. And so this is how Colin Powell claimed in his United Nations address that Zarqawi was the link between Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, even though he had told bin Laden, no, I don't want to join your group. I want to focus on killing the king of Jordan. And even though Saddam Hussein's only relationship with him was he had put out an all points bulletin for the guy's arrest. I don't know exactly what they call it, you know, in the bureaucraties of the Mukbarat there, dude. But uh, that was essentially it. He had a warrant out for his arrest. But Saddam's forces couldn't get him because he was up in no fly protected American autonomous Kurdistan. And according to Jim McLeshesky here, the military drafted up plans to attack the camp with cruise missiles and airstrikes and sent it to the White House. The plan was debated to death in the National Security Council. And um, then four months later, intelligence showed Zarqawi that's still in the run-up to the war. This is before the war, before the invasion of March 03. Four months later, intelligence shows Zarqawi was planning to use ricin in terrorist attacks in Europe. So the Pentagon blew up, drew up, a second strike plan, and the White House killed it again. Um, and here they say that, uh, oh, I like this, in January 03, that threat turned real. Police in London arrested six terror suspects and discovered a ricin lab connected to the camp in Iraq. I don't know if that's really true. But the Pentagon, here's the important part, the Pentagon drew up still another attack plan. And for the third time, the National Security Council killed it. Now, we're talking about the Americans could just helicopter in there and there's no armed force to oppose them. The Kurdish Peshmerga of Talibani and Barzani were in America's pocket. This is a rogue group out there on the outskirts somewhere. Saddam Hussein's military forces could not reach to oppose it, whether they had used cruise missiles or 
um, or uh, helicopters or paratroopers or whatever, they could have gone in there essentially unopposed by any state force. It would have just been, you know, the Green Berets versus a militia in one camp. And they didn't do it. And here's the deal right here. Jim Mikloszewski writes, military officials insist their case for attacking Zarqawi's operation was airtight, but the administration feared destroying the terrorist camp in Iraq could undercut its case for war against Saddam. So that was why they let him live. And then once the war started, he came down from Kurdistan after Colin Powell had made him famous and was responsible for maybe 2% of the Sunni insurgency, but including a lot of the very worst of it. There's a huge propaganda campaign blaming him for the whole Sunni insurgency because they didn't want to admit that these are Iraqis fighting. This is a Sunni-based insurgency. It's a sectarian war. Um, but they wanted to say, no, it's terrorists. Terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. It's America and the people of Iraq versus the terrorists. And so they're all, all resistance is led by Zarqawi, which was a total lie. Uh, he became very useful for you know a whole new life of talking points that lasted for two years before he was finally killed in 2006. Now, you're telling me that Soleimani's more responsible for that than George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice and Stephen Hadley? Wrong. No way. And by the way, let me give you a couple more footnotes on that real quick because Mikloszewski can be really hard to spell. That's at NBC News, Jim Mikloszewski. Then there's Michael Scheuer, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, confirmed it to the age in Australia that that was true. Then there's this great article in Task and Purpose called CIA agents were on the ground before we invaded Iraq and they knew it was going to be a cluster, dang old F word there. And they quote Sam Faddis on the ground talking about how they had the plan to roll these guys up before the war broke out and they were denied over and over again. It was Operation Hotel California because you can check out but you can never leave, get it? Mm -hmm. And so what's next here, buddy? What do we got? What I leave oh, out? Well, I think your your whole talk about Shalabi in the beginning uh, pretty much destroys what uh, Baker said in Soleimani's plan was to push the Shia in Iraq towards Iran for support. He didn't want the U.S. building a strong, stable Iraq. Well, America prioritized Soleimani's priorities. What can I say? Um, the Americans weren't trying to build a strong, stable Iraq. They were trying to build an Iraq dominated by the Shia that they thought they would dominate and would be able to use that against the Iranians. And that just didn't work. It never was going to work. And look, again, the policy of creating a strong Iraqi Shia stand separate from the Sunni Arabs, that was an Iranian policy. I mean, it was Iraqis who carried it out, but that was what Iran wanted to, and they worked at it. And when we talk about a million people were killed in Iraq War II, then yeah, some you know, major portion of that is Iran's responsibility. That was, that was what they wanted as well. That was their policy. But the thing is, America was the one that invaded the country and overthrew Saddam Hussein. Joe Biden was the chair of the Foreign Intelligence Committee saying we've got to split the country in three. George Bush and Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl, they're the ones who said, all we got to do is set up the Shia in power and they'll do whatever we say because Chalabi promised. And so it's their fault. They can cry all day about the guilt of the Iranians there. But all they're essentially crying is that they fought a five to eight year war for their adversaries, not really our enemies. It was the bin Ladenites that attacked the United States. And when they talk about now, we got to talk about the 600 dead. OK, you notice they don't talk about the 4,500 in total in the war. The 4,000 of those died fighting the Sunni insurgency, Pete. For these guys died fighting these Sunni insurgency for 
these same Shiite parties and with them. Now, it's not 600. It's really more like 500 Americans died fighting the Shiites. But it's only by the transitive property of they insist and they refuse to get into details. This is all glittering generalities you notice, all their slogans about, well, Iran killed this and Iran killed that without explaining what they mean. What they mean is back in 2007, there was a false propaganda campaign. It was just a lie. That said that every time an Iraqi Shia sets off a bomb that kills an American, then that bomb came from Iran. And it just wasn't true. It was never true. All that happened was they said it 10,000 times. And, you know, their main propagandist for this in the American press was Michael Gordon at the New York Times, the very same guy who wrote with Judith Miller all about Saddam Hussein's attempt to build an atomic bomb. And he was the guy, handmaiden for General David Petraeus, who launched his surge during that time. Petraeus had been the guy who turned the Bada Brigade into the Iraqi army. That was his previous job before leading the surge was training up the army and essentially turning the Bada Brigade into it. I mean, that was who he was and what he'd done. Then he came in uh, and took charge of the war in the beginning of 2007, and he targeted Muqtad al-Sadr. Now again, or I don't know if I specified this in this interview, Sadr was one of the three major Shiite leaders in the new Iraqi government. It was Dawa, Skiri, and Sadr. Dawa and Skiri, the Supreme Islamic Council, they were the ones who were closest to Iran. Sadr, again, was the one who was most nationalist. So what the Americans do? They accused him of being the Iranian cat's paw and attacked him full force and, in fact, chased him into Iran, where I'm sure he got closer to them than ever before while he was there. Uh, and meanwhile... And you can ask Danny Sherson about this. We've talked about it on the show a hundred times. You know, why were Danny Sherson's guys getting blown up in East Baghdad? Because Danny Sherson's guys were in East Baghdad. And Danny was smart enough. He's a uh, was a major in the war over there. And I think at that time he might have been a sergeant. And he was smart enough to know that, hey, the war isn't here, guys. We're in East Baghdad. These are the guys that we're here for. These are the guys that we're putting in power. So we shouldn't be going around lording it over them and treating them like the enemy. But he surrounded, you know, his he talked about Colonel Kozlarich across the road. He didn't see it that way at all. He's here to get some. Let's fight. And they just fight these guys for no reason at all. And then when they defend themselves, oh, no, that's Iran. Every time a Shiite kills an American, it's Iran. Why? Because Petraeus and Michael Gordon say so. That's why. But meanwhile, we know for a fact that those bombs were made in Iraq by Iraqis. Their machine shops and garages were found over and over and over again. I have a blog entry at antiwar.com about it that anybody can read. It says, uh, did Iran kill 600 Americans in Iraq War II? No. And then I have all these links because we debunked it back then. My, my first link debunking this is March 2006, a year before the real propaganda campaign even got going on it. And, uh, you know, they had some trial balloons where I was calling them out from the very beginning. This doesn't make any sense. What are they talking about? And anyway, they found these garages over and over again. You can read about it in the L.A. Times, in the Wall Street Journal, in the Washington Post. You can even read about it in the New York Times when it's not Michael Gordon, but it's Alyssa Fisher did a story where she talks all about it. And there was one in Wired, had a whole write up about it and on and on. And, of course, Phil, uh, uh, Phil Giraldi had uh, two or three great pieces on it, and Gareth Porter had like ten, and including recently. He did another one last year, knocking this down again because this keeps coming back up. They never provided a shred of evidence, Pete, that a single one of these bombs came from Iran ever, much less that it had been sent by the Iranian government. Of course, the whole region is lousy with weapons for sale on all kinds of markets black, white, and gray, and who knows what, across what borders. But they still didn't prove that any came from Iran, much less that they'd come from the Iranian government. It just wasn't true. And all it was is it's a shaped charge with a copper core. And so uh, what it does is it turns the, the copper core 
get turns molten and cuts right through armor. It's a very effective weapon. It uh, was extremely effective and extremely frustrating for American soldiers dealing with that. But it was all Petraeus's fault for putting them at war in East Baghdad and in Najaf where they had no business fighting. And you know what? I'm sorry. I just can't help but keep ranting about this for now 13 years in a row. That There's this book called The Good Soldiers by David Finkel, the Washington Post reporter. And he's embedded with these guys under Colonel Kozlarich, which is across the street from Danny Sherson's group, essentially, at the other firebase there. And they're fighting in East Baghdad. And this is their summer there, I guess. Their tour in East Baghdad, maybe four, six months over there. And there's only two places in the book, Pete. One is Colonel Kozlarich kind of muttering to himself. And the other is David Finkel himself, the reporter who's writing the book, kind of muttering to himself. And what they both say is, huh, it is kind of weird and ironic, isn't it, that we're here fighting against the Shiites when really we're fighting this whole war for them, right? And so it's kind of strange that we would be doing this, but I guess maybe I'm not supposed to understand. Okay, next page. And then that's it. And they're just throwing these boys' lives away and the locals too. I just wanted, I think uh, Danny was a lieutenant when he was uh, when he was stationed there. Okay. I think I think he said that on my show to sum this up. And this is Baker said this and it's directly out of he's just using language directly out of the um the article. Soleimani was a mob boss, not a military general or foreign leader. See what you said previously was that those um those explosive devices weren't coming from the Iranian government. The way they get around that is oh, he was, you know, he, he was a mob boss, not a military general or a foreign leader. Um, he is the head well, terrorist. So let, let, you're right. I, I understand what you're saying. I, but you know what? Here's the th- I mean, that's kind of a cheat there. But really, they're just trying to demonize him and say that he was something other than an official, a government official. Um, and the thing is, though, is that these aren't exclusive concepts, right? He absolutely was a general. He was the head of their special operations command. Nobody disputes that, that he was a general. What does that mean? You're not a general as like an insult? That doesn't mean anything. Now, was he a mob boss? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And by the way, what makes America or, well, sorry, it's not a very good way to phrase it. (laughs) Uh, What's the best way? For a foreigner to help the Quds Force get a stranglehold on all of the worst and most destructive black markets in Iranian society. And that is our current, our former, and now current, again, sanctions regime. That means that, of course, as you could have taught a class on this, in a situation like that, who's allowed to get away with breaking the law? <laughs> Only the cops can get, a lot, can get away with trading in oil or and anything else of high value that's banned from trade. And so the more America punishes the Iranian people's economy in general, the more the Quds Force and the Revolutionary Guards benefit at their expense. That's absolutely the case, and that's absolutely been the case of the anti-sanctions types for years. That you say you hate Soleimani so much, how come you're the one who keeps filling his pockets with cash? Why should the only oil business in Iran be dominated by the Quds Force? It's only because nobody else can get away with transporting it. You know, no one else can get the job done there. So, yeah. And then, but as far as just, you know, demonizing the guy, thousands of people killed. Well, that's nothing compared to David Petraeus. David Petraeus escalated and lost two wars. So if we're going by just number of skulls counted, Oh, of course, he also attacks him, and it's hilarious to me watching this on TV, watching people attack Soleimani for killing all the people he killed in Syria. Uh-huh, and what was the context to that? He was protecting the secular Ba'athist dictatorship from overthrow by either al-Jolani, Zarqawi's guy in al-Qaeda, or Baghdadi from the Islamic State, the al-Qaeda break-off group where they're both just in a contest for who loves Osama's legacy more. And those are the groups that America and Turkey and Saudi and Israel and Qatar were backing 
against the people and the government of Syria. And yet this is supposed to be Iran's worst war crime is that they sent the Quds Force to take the state side there. Yeah, I just saw the headline this morning. Someone was passing around the headline from the Los Angeles Times from 2015. DOD's forces in Syria fight CIA's forces in Syria. Well, Iran was on DOD's side against CIA. So, who are the traitors? The traitors were the CIA under John Brennan backing al-Qaeda. The Iranians and the Kurds in cooperation with the Department of Defense were fighting against them. You know, and you'll notice this. I know you have noticed this. and I'm sure your listeners have noticed this. When Mike Baker or any of these guys make all their accusations, they never really get down into the details, do they? They never really do define who did what and when and why they did. All they do is truncate their antecedents. Oh, well, this general, he killed people. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, we are in a political discussion about governments and things that they did, which, yes, include violence. <laughs> the whole question was who's Zoom and who. The whole question was, why was George W. Bush carrying this guy's pail of water up and down the hill for eight years in Iraq? Huh? Because Ahmed Chalabi impressed Paul Wolfowitz, who told Ariel Sharon that, don't worry, dude, we got this all gamed out because we're so smart. That doesn't seem like a very good enough answer to me. It's, it's close to the right answer, but it's certainly not good enough. One last thing. He was the head terrorist for a state that is the number one sponsor for terrorism around the world. I've had you on this podcast numerous times, and I don't think I've ever asked you to address this, that Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism around the world. And you will have people parroting that all over the place. I mean, just social media, the news, Joe Rogan experience. What does that even mean? One, it's the mark of a parrot, right? It's a slogan. The number one state sponsor. Again, never defined. And if you had to ask them, you know what they're going to do. They're going to reach back to 1983 when the Amal militia blew up the Marines who were combatants occupying Beirut in a war where they had no business whatsoever, said their commander in chief who removed those who were left immediately. And who turned around and started selling Iran missiles the next day. Go through their legacy. All of the worst that they did was take full advantage of Bush's Iraq War II and full advantage of Obama's catastrophe in Syria to improve their power and position in those two countries. And I guess you could say the same after America helped Saudis start this war again under Barack Obama, helped Saudis start this war in Yemen. They've now improved their power and influence in that country uh, compared to the way things were before. So, you know, that's essentially all the worst that you could say about them. But are the Houthis terrorists? No. The Bada Brigade, well, they're merciless torturers and murderers. I don't think you could really call them terrorists, no. Uh, they certainly wage a ruthless sectarian cleansing campaign with American and Iranian help. But... Uh, yeah, that doesn't really make them terrorists. And the same thing for the forces fighting in Syria. You know, it's easy to criticize Assad. I, I sure don't mind saying that Assad's war against the CIA and America's allies, bin Ladenite terrorists there, was a ruthless war. And the so-called collateral damage is in the tens of thousands of people, maybe more than that. That's all true. But does that make... Soleimani a terrorist? No. He supports Hezbollah, but Hezbollah hasn't been at war with Israel since Israel withdrew from Lebanon that they had invaded and occupied in 1999, 2000, except for a month and a half or what, four or six weeks there in um, the summer of 2006, which uh, the Israelis invaded again. And then ended up withdrawing. And I'm not saying that Hezbollah didn't play their role in the border, you know, dispute that there was a kidnapping across the border that I think 
Hezbollah thought they were going to get a ransom or a prisoner swap, and instead they got a big escalation. Um, I'm not, you know, just to point out, I'm not saying they were innocent in the thing, but they didn't invade northern Israel. Hezbollah sits there all day. They don't invade northern Israel. They don't commit suicide attacks and all this stuff. So Iran supports Hamas, but Hamas isn't in a terrorist group necessarily. I mean, they're in the way the IRA kind of grew into a political faction, you know, the Sinn Féin and the political faction. Hamas has their military brigades, but they're a political party. They ran for election in an election that George W. Bush and uh, at the time Ariel Sharon insisted that they hold. And they won that election. They've been under siege for winning ever since then. But they have said numerous times that they're willing to recognize Israel if they could get a two-state solution and a final status negotiation for the West Bank and Gaza as an independent Palestinian state, that they're willing to settle for 22% of Palestine. They don't you know, claim – it still says in the charter that, yeah, one day they'd like all of Palestine back. They've said repeatedly that they're willing to settle for the measly 22%. So – you know, Netanyahu says, oh, well, you know, Fatah is Hamas, is ISIS. Well, this is just a lie. This is just a liar telling lies. You know, the whole reason that the Israelis encouraged the creation of Hamas was to divide and conquer the Palestinians, to create a right-wing religious alternative to the PLO. And in fact, I just finished rereading Devil's Game by Robert Dreyfus, and all of chapter eight is about this. And it's just brilliant. And goes to show how they did this deliberately. The Israelis encouraged the rise of Hamas. And, you know, the Iranians may be donating to Hamas again, but they cut them off during the Syria war because Hamas sided with the revolution. And the Iranians, of course, sided with Assad. And so um, they had cut them off. If they're giving them some money again, you know, I hope it's going some major proportion to the desperate, you know, uh, civilian population of the Gaza Strip, the besieged, helpless population of Gaza. But um, none of this amounts to the world's greatest state-sponsored terrorism. Meanwhile, the greatest international terrorist group, of course, is al-Qaeda. And the greatest state sponsor of al-Qaeda is Saudi Arabia in conjunction with the United States of America. Barack Obama spent a billion dollars a year supporting the jihad in Syria. Beat that. You want to say Soleimani's, you know, token help uh, and and help and, and in alliance with Hezbollah to help the, the Syrian government hold al-Qaeda back makes them the greatest sponsored terrorism? It's just not true. All I have to do is just break this down. USA, Turkey. Saudi, Qatar, Israel were the ones supporting Jabhat al-Nusra, Arar al-Sham, the Army of Islam, and all these different jihadist groups all through the uh, Syria war, 2011 through, what, 16, 17 there. And Donald Trump was the one who called it off finally, six months into his presidency, in June. And you know what it said, Pete? I bet you could bet. In the Washington Post, the headline read, in a move sure to please Vladimir Putin, Trump cancels CIA support for Al-Qaeda, suicide bomber, head chopper, murderer, cousins of the butchers of New York. Okay, I elaborated on the last part of it there. But it did, it did begin literally with, in move sure to please Putin, Trump cuts CIA support for the terrorists in Syria. No lie. And so that's how they frame it. And, you know, so much of this, right, doesn't it depend on you not being able to tell your shirts from your skins? Well, I don't know, terrorism this, terrorism that. As Dick Cheney said, Iraq, well, you know, it's sort of the geographical center of where this kind of terrorism comes from. Huh? What? Close enough to an American can't find Iran on a map. You know, you say that Ayman al-Zawahiri wants America to kill the Ayatollah in Iran for him? Mm. You think anybody on TV could figure that out? You know, you think anyone would ask a follow up question on TV? Well, geez, I don't know, Jack Keen. You keep saying that the Iranians are the worst terrorists. And yet the real worst terrorist, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City, he hates the Ayatollah, doesn't he? 
He wants to kill the Ayatollah. He wants us to kill the Ayatollah. Huh? Huh? Whose side is he on in this? And I don't know. Well, no one will ever ask Jack Keane, so we'll never know his answer. I guess he would sputter this same nonsense about, oh, no, no, Soleimani controls him too. Yeah, sure. And don't forget Vladimir Putin controls them all. You know, from his secret satanic laboratory deep beneath the North Pole or wherever it is. I feel guilty. I hope I did not miss any major points in this Wall Street Journal piece. I mean, most of it is just kind of filler. You know, nothing specific. Just like, oh, this guy, you know, he likes throwing his weight around. Uh huh. <laughs> That's quite a paragraph there, you know? Uh, well, here's one thing that they say at the end that uh, is worth addressing where, you know, this guy is some American officer is paraphrasing the Iraqis as saying that. Yeah, they're pretty sick and tired of this guy telling them what to do all the time. And probably some of them are a bit relieved to have him gone. I don't doubt that. You know, uh, it's not the case that America put the Iranians in power in Baghdad, just their best friends. But they are Arabs and they are Iraqis. And that is different uh, than the Iranian Persians. And so they have different chains of command and and uh, and different interests in a lot of ways. And, you know, I would point out that um, all through the late summer and the fall, there were huge protests against Almaty. Remember I said the current prime minister, he's had to resign. He's just a caretaker prime minister now. Well, he's from the Supreme Islamic Council. He's actually the guy that Bush tried to rig the election for back in 2004, uh, 2005, um, which didn't work. But anyway um, – so he's from the Supreme Islamic Council, and people are protesting against him. It, the country's a horrible kleptocracy. I mean, you're talking about tens of billions of dollars a year just evaporating into these guys, you know, going right in their pockets and not going to, to run anything like their basic services or anything. So the economy is just shambles. Electricity still isn't to pre-war levels. I mean, it's just a wreck. Um, and so there are all these protests. Well, Soleimani... Whether there's anything to this or not, I doubt it, actually. He assumed that this is all an American plot and had his guys fire on them. In fact, it almost looked like a false flag. I was wondering whether these were – this was the American side trying to frame them up like in the Ukraine uh, Maidan, um, you know, hoax there. But no, it looks like these really were the – um, the most Iranian tide of the militias were just being absolutely ruthless with their sniper rifles, putting down, trying to put down the protest movement and only inflaming it. I mean, that goes to show how desperate people were at that time that they weren't scared. They were radicalized by the sniper fire. And they were going back out and really protesting and they had forced the prime minister to resign. And then, of course, once America killed Soleimani with the leader of Khatib Hezbollah there – a guy who would, you know, America had fought for for years. Um, then all that ended. And all of this anti-Iranian pressure inside Iraq ended up, um, you know, abating. And so it just goes to show that not that it's a foolproof thing for every time, but all other things being equal, if the Americans would just get out of the way and allow these things to play out, the Iraqis have their own reasons to resent the Iranians and want to marginalize their influence. And that doesn't mean they have to tilt toward us necessarily. But if what we're so worried about is Iranian influence in Iraq post-03, then, you know, it's the same thing with al-Qaeda in Iraq. I mean, what happened to them before Obama saved their life and turned them into the caliphate? What happened to them? The local Iraqi Sunnis killed them off. It wasn't David Petraeus who beat them. It was the local Iraqi Sunnis. So these Zarqawiites with their suicide attacks and their beheadings and getting us into deep, deep trouble with these Shiite death squads, not worth it. Let's kill them. So if you were a Saudi or an Egyptian or a Jordanian or a Syrian and you were there fighting with the Bin Ladenites, your life was forfeit. And it was the local Iraqi Sunnis that took care of the problem for us. And so... You know, that was the worst thing imaginable that Bush did there was turn all of Western Iraq into jihadi stand for five years there. And then, oh, hey, look, problem solved itself. And their power had been completely marginalized almost to complete obliteration at the time then that Obama came 
and resuscitated them and gave them a whole new battlefield and billions of dollars to fight with in Syria, leading to the rise of ISIS and all that. But, um, you know, it does go to show, though, that I, you know, I do agree with this guy that, you know, the Iraqi leaders, uh, from their point of view, they why would they want to be anything but independent? They could be friends with the Iranians and and uh, work with the Iranians on whatever issues, but they're, of course, jealous of their own power and authority, and that ought to be good enough for us. And by the way, you know, one last thing here to wrap it up, because this is a good place to wrap it up. I just mentioned that when they killed Soleimani, they killed this guy uh, with him from the Bada Brigade and the Dawa Party, uh, Al Mahandis. I think I don't know how to pronounce his name right. But anyway, um, this is a guy that is a poster child, essentially, for George W. Bush's work effort to put him in power. These are the guys that America not just fought Iraq War II for, but also fought Iraq War III for. In fact, why do we have 5,000, 6,000 guys in Iraq right now? They're fighting Iraq War III and a half with these Shiite groups, the Shiite Iraqi army and the Shiite militias against the Islamic State, the Bin Ladenites, the Sunnis in the West. And, um, and yet our government can't stand that these are the groups that we put in power there. And they hate them so much, they're bombing and killing just like in 2007 attacking Sadr. Here they are killing the, uh, you know, a member of parliament in the democracy they created. A leader of the Bada Brigade that Rumsfeld had allied with in the El Salvador option and Petraeus had trained up into the Iraqi army. So that means then that we should just quit now. There's nobody else to choose from. We have our friends in Kurdistan, but they're fine up in Kurdistan. They have an alliance with the Shia, but they're not dominated by them. Between the Islamic State on one side and the Shiite State that we created on the other, apparently we hate the guys we fought two wars for so badly we're murdering them now. And it seems like a really good time. January 2020, go ahead and call the whole thing off right here. And you know what? Not that it's fair, but let's just pretend the whole thing never happened. I bet the American people could do that. Yeah, man. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well. Anyway, man. What? Your show. <laughs> what? You just need to get more people listening to your show. Working on it, brother. Working on it. Thanks for doing this. Do you uh, anything you want to plug right now? Um, well, antiwar.com, the Libertarian Institute, my show, the Scott Horton show, I got 5,000 interviews going back 2003 at scotthorton.org. And, um, I wrote a book called Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Talk to you. Thank you very much, Pete. Appreciate it. I want to thank you for tuning into the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. I want to thank Scott for coming back on. That's it. Be back in a few days with another episode. Take care. And bye.